Today's scripture reading comes from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Listen for what the Spirit is saying to the church today. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone." Jesus said to him again, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him, and suddenly angels came and waited on him. Let us pray. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts, be faithful in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In 1988, Peggy McIntosh wrote an essay called White Privilege, Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack, where she attempted to demystify a phrase that perplexed white folks at best, and provoked their fury at worst. White privilege. Instead of offering another definition or theorizing or intellectualizing, McIntosh provided a list, a list of conditions that white people can generally count on in their daily lives that people of color cannot count on. 33 years later, the list is still relevant, and it is often the go-to source for white people who are beginning a journey in their own racial self-discovery. It takes white privilege out of the realm of ideas, and it brings it home. There are 50 conditions on that list which includes the following. I can, if I wish, arrange to be in the company of people of my race most of the time. 
I can go shopping alone most of the time, pretty well assured that I will not be followed or harassed. When I am told about our national heritage or about civilization, I am shown that people of my color made it what it is. I can do well in a challenging situation without being called a credit to my race. If I should need to move, I can be pretty sure of renting or purchasing a home in an area which I can afford and in which I would want to live. I can worry about racism without being seen as self-interested or self-seeking. On Sunday mornings and Wednesday evenings, groups of Ottawilders have been exploring how racism manifests in different systems, criminal justice, education, housing. And more recently, we have begun to unpack our own invisible knapsacks, naming the ways that white skin has meaning in our lives. We're learning how to name that meaning in ways that people with dark skin know and can name readily for themselves. And for most of us, it is the first time that we've really considered white as part of our identities, as something that means more than normal or neutral, terms that in and of themselves reveal our privileged place in a racially stratified society. Identity is important. Developmental psychologist Eric Erickson called it the task or the crisis of adolescence and early adulthood. When we either claim and form identities or we don't, which provokes confusion and a developmental crisis not overcome that impacts the rest of our lives. Our identities are many, some more social, some more personal, and many overlap or intersect. When I describe myself, I name and claim the various identities that I've either been given or honed over time. I am Sarah, daughter of Brenda and Gary, wife to Will, mother to Nicholas. I am biologically female, and I identify as woman. I am a pastor, a Presbyterian, an American, a member of a particular political party, a former singer and thespian. I'm white a person with Irish and Scottish and Norwegian ancestry. Identities are grounding. They engender a sense of belonging that is crucial to our emotional well-being. And, as is the case with white folks beginning journeys of racial identity discovery, knowing them and naming them can unveil some of the baggage we carry and the responsibility that comes with it. Jesus was no exception to the rules of identity. As a full human being, Jesus carried with him identities that grounded him, that gave him meaning and engendered a sense of belonging. 
He was the son of Mary and Joseph, a descendant of Jacob and Methan and Eleazar. He was a Nazarene, a Jew. He was a carpenter. He was male. He probably had dark skin. It is this fully human Jesus that is led by the Spirit into the wilderness immediately following his baptism to be tempted by the devil. The three temptations that Jesus must overcome aren't terrible. Turning stone into bread would be getting something that he desperately needed. Throwing himself off the pinnacle of the temple would have proven who he was. Securing power over all the kingdoms of the world would have enabled him to effect change and good change. The temptations that meet Jesus remind us that in the wilderness especially, temptation isn't so obvious, which makes the challenge of overcoming temptation that much more difficult. When the temptation is towards something seemingly good, recognizing the evil on the other side is half the battle. What Jesus recognizes at the center of these proposals is that he is being taunted, manipulated. It is not so much the detail of the temptations themselves that contain the crux of this wilderness experience. It is rather the devil's questioning of Jesus's true identity. If you are the son of God, he says, if you are the son of God, get what you need. I bet you can't. Prove who you are. It's not true. Take your power. I know you want to. The taunts are felt under the skin. They aren't unlike the voices that we haven't invited to our wilderness journeys. The voices that sow self-doubt and confusion and even despair. And so the words that Jesus offers in response, though true, function more as a deflection. He refuses to let the devil have his way with him. He isn't going to doubt that he is exactly who he was made and was called to be. He isn't going to be tempted away from his truest self. The temptation Jesus has to overcome is the temptation away from his identity as the Son of God. And you might say that it involved a rejection, or at least a subordination, of the other identities that he carried. For as much good as identity gives us, there is a shadow side to the identities that we unconsciously accept or intentionally claim or ferociously hold. 
And those identities affect our sense of self, our interpersonal relationships, even the way that nation states engage with one another. When Ukraine erupted in civil war in the spring of 2014, the more thoughtful commentators noted the larger theater in which that conflict was playing itself out. The regrettable situation that the young country but ancient civilization was put in, forced to choose between East and West, between Russia on the one hand and the EU and the United States on the other, forced to choose economic alignment with two foes entrenched by their own identities. A choice for Ukrainian leaders that either way would have threatened the identities of some Ukrainians, divided as they are by heritage and language and worldview, divided by identity. Kwame Anthony Apia wrote extensively on the issue of identity in his book, The Lies That Bind, Rethinking Identity. And in it, he expounded upon the issue of gender and how our discomfort with ambiguity and our need for clear definitions forces a binary between male and female and their assigned expressions and behaviors that can cause great distress for those who don't fit neatly into those two categories. He talks about the science itself that confirms the existence of people who don't necessarily fit into the identities of male and female, much less their social constructs, man and woman, the second they're born. Typically, men have an XY chromosome, women an XX, but in fact, we're finding that it's not always that clear cut. Different combinations can occur. Some research shows that as many as one in 100 babies are born in some way intersex. And the practice has been to tidy up any trace of ambiguity soon after birth. Identity can be a complicated thing, and finding one can be a painful road for those who don't feel at home in the identities we've baptized. In another example, he tells the story of a famous social experiment that took place in 1953 on a wooded and sprawling campsite in Oklahoma. Two groups of 11-year-old boys were assembled for traditional summer camp. All of them were Protestant, white, and middle class. But the groups didn't know about the existence of each other. They were kept separate for the first week. But once they did learn that there was another group nearby, they began to challenge one another to competitive games like baseball or tug of war. And in the next four days, a couple of things happened. The groups gave themselves names. They were the Rattlers and the Eagles, and a fierce antagonism arose between them. Flags were torched, cabins were raided, Rocks were collected as weapons for an anticipated attack. Among the rattlers, an ethos of toughness developed. 
The eagles, having defeated the foul-mouthed rattlers in a game, decided to distinguish themselves by not cursing. The researchers noted that the boys did not feel the name, or the, the need, rather, for a collective name or those more detailed identities until they learned about the presence of those other boys on the campground. Identities were formed out of the presence of the other, and opposition followed soon thereafter. So it seems that identity, when unexplored, unquestioned, unprovoked, and unyielding, can be toxic, whether it's in individuals or groups or even nations. It can be used to divide, to justify abuse, to insist on uniformity. It can paralyze the creation of newer and more just ways of being. When Jesus faced temptation in his wilderness, all of the other identities that he brought with him were put on trial. And with those identities, no shortage of behaviors and ways of being in the world that reflected them. To the first century Jew that lived in an occupied land, you could argue that the power to throw off the chains of Roman oppression by inheriting all the kingdoms of the world may have been the most attractive of the devil's ploys. But worshiping the devil in return for the keys would have meant exercising power in the way of the world, not in the way of God's love. If you are the son of God, taunts the devil, I am the son of God, Jesus responds. The various identities Jesus carried, like the various identities we all carry, were good. They offered grounding and belonging. They were sources of meaning. But in order for Jesus to be who he was created to be, in order to fulfill his calling, those lesser identities had to take a back seat. Jesus had to resist the temptation to let them claim him, to lean on them when his identity as the Son of God felt too personal or demanded too much. His truest identity would be the filter through which all of those other identities would have to travel. It would be the fire, like the Spirit of God herself, refining them and purifying them. And it's the same for us. It's the way that our many and diverse identities become sources of creativity and empathy and transformation rather than rigidness or divisiveness or hate. When our various identities are filtered through the truest thing about ourselves, that we are children of the living God, the question becomes, how does my maleness or femaleness serve that identity 
that call? How does my whiteness or blackness serve that call? How does my citizenship of this country serve that call? How does my vocation serve that call? How does my identity as an artist or an athlete or a parent or a public servant serve that call? Born of the truest thing about myself. I am a child of God. I learned recently from educator and psychologist Shelley Tuchluk that when Peggy McIntosh wrote that list of 50 ways white skin affords privilege in day-to-day life, unpacking the invisible knapsack, doing the hard work of naming and exploring even the tougher parts of identity, she developed it after praying for guidance. The answers came to her in the middle of the night, awaking her and prompting her to write them down quickly. She was convinced that in the light of day, they would be lost to unconsciousness. We are inheritors of this list because of a woman's intentional wilderness practice and the freedom that came of it. A decision to filter one of her identities through the truest one. I am a child of God. May we too resist the temptation away from our truest identities. We are children of God and find the freedom therein. Thanks be to God. Amen.